The Free For All Roundtable. Round two. Joining us for round two today, Laura Babcock of Power Group Communications and host of the O Show on Zoom, uh, principal at BroadwayStrategy.com and the man behind Touchdowns and Fumbles, heard right here on News Talk 1010 on Fridays, Bob Reed. And last but not least, Dipika Demerla, Mississauga City Councillor, and maybe more, but we'll have to see about that. I'm not asking for any questions <laughs> that don't have answers as yet. So um, let's start off with something that we've been discussing a bit uh, this morning. Morning and, and just get your take on uh, this whole business of how it can be. And Depeka, I'll start maybe with you. Uh, you. You take a big government, the city of Mississauga is a big government, as was the city of Toronto, which I was uh, a part of, and you just wonder how with all the process, too much I would argue, that goes on with approvals of signs, you could end up going all the way through that process, all the way through the manufacturing of the signs, and have signs posted, directional signs for bicyclists uh, that have spelling mistakes in them, trial for trail and down on for downtown how does this happen it's mind-boggling right i mean you have layers and layers of people who are supposed to check the stuff and you know this and you've talked about it and i know this where a simple request you know goes through multiple emails and you know you can't get a straight answer easily and you have all these checks and balances and i guess i guess you know to be charitable john maybe once in a way uh, it's just human error, right? And everything just falls through the cracks. But what I found equally interesting was a comment by a reader. Now, I am not familiar with that area, but she says, why do you even need a sign that says Lakeshore Road is 200 meters away? Because I can actually read the sign that says Lakeshore Road from that sign. So that begs the question why we're also spending taxpayer dollars putting up signs that might not be required. Yeah, but you also know, Laura, I'll, I'll turn this to you. You also know if you don't put up signs, you know, we may know, or you may know, I may know where Lakeshore is, but some other person may not and be thinking, well, have I gone too far? Should I turn around? It, it's a little easier with your phones these days, which can tell you where to go and where to turn and all that kind of stuff. But Laura, if you don't put the signs up, people might be uh, critical of that. But I just don't know how it gets through this process that uh, Dipika and I just described without somebody noticing that it said trial instead of trail. Well, it's a couple of things. One, in terms of signage, driving in Toronto is difficult. So, you know, I'm all for signage when it's done properly. But when it comes to why does this happen, there's a couple of things. I mean, just from a point of view of communications, when you are proofreading something, it's helpful to read it backwards, right? Because our, our brain kind of has this confirmation bias and it fills in patterns and it will fill in letters and words so that it looks like what we want it to do. Uh, and it's always good to read things backwards just to get around that. But I think it's bigger than that, John. I think it comes down to this kind of group think right this everyone is is in these horrible email chains that go on and on nobody takes direct accountability for anything and people at one point i mean i'm sure somebody saw that how could you not right somebody would know how to proofread who's in the business of having to proofread signage that's going to cost taxpayers money they probably saw it and thought you know what it's not my problem you know i'm not the one who's got the sign off on this project and i'm not particularly that engaged so to me it goes more to either there's incompetence people don't know how to proofread which I doubt, or it is the fact that there's a, a culture of malaise. And we've certainly seen this in other municipalities where 
year after year, things just don't get fixed. There's no performance standards. You know, people are pretty secure in their positions and they just think, you know what, not my problem, not my circus, not my monkey. I'm really not going to get invested in trying to fix this. Yeah. And, you know, Bob, I think it also could be the case uh, beyond there being a culture of kind of um, uh, people not caring, a complacency or whatever. There's a bit, I, I believe there's a bit of a culture of anxiety. People are afraid to be the one, say, even pointing out a mistake. People are afraid to point out a mistake because they think, well, that might make the project late and then I'll get blamed for the fact it's late. And there's this whole thing. And I, I'm a great admirer of and, and fan of the public service. I think they do a much better job than they're given credit for. But still, I think there are a number of these kind of uh, paranoias that exist inside the public service that cause mistakes just not to be caught. Yeah, I think there's got to be, as Laura said, a, a combination of a whole bunch of things that, that will, will feed into this because surely to God it went through enough hands that somebody, somebody somewhere must have noticed. And, and whether that's even the crew on the truck that's going out to exactly. the signpost to actually install it. But then at that point to people, is, is that it, 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 is, is that what comes into play where people go, yeah, well, it's not my job just to put it up. I'm not the one responsible. That's exactly for right. Yeah. Exactly right. And, you know, I I will say the city people deserve maybe not a touchdown, but a field goal, at least for uh, apologizing quickly. Not that people wanted an apology. They're just saying, well, hey, you know, why don't you just stop doing this stuff? But anyway, uh, it is what it is. Um, again, we're, we're uh, let's talk about city things. Uh, there's a group out this morning that are complaining about the uh, impact of what they call aggressive running clubs. I'm not sure what an aggressive running club is, but the, 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 they, they talk about people maybe getting sort of body checked. They talk about... Uh, uh, people sort of cursing and swearing when a, a mere uh, pedestrian sort of takes up some space on the sidewalk. I've seen these clubs out there. I think it's great that they're out together socializing, especially in a co post-COVID world and just getting exercise. But do you think this is a problem or is this a very isolated thing where a couple of people have got attention, as you can do nowadays, uh, Laura, you know, just by raising the issue of aggressive running clubs? Well, I'm with you. I love the idea of running clubs. I think it's a healthier way to get together. But we have to share pedestrian space, right? We have to share sidewalks. Uh, there are people who have mobility issues who can't just jump out of the way of 50 people running down the sidewalk and, you know, little pets, things like that. So I don't think this is a crisis. I don't think they're the, you know, what did they call them in that video, the most dangerous gang in Toronto. Yeah. Well, that's all hyperbole to get hits, right? Uh, to get views. But the, the reality is, you know, running clubs clubs, yeah, there's a lot of you, you're going fast. And I, when I run, I don't like things getting in my way either, because you kind of got a rhythm going on. Um, but you have to realize that you got to share the sidewalks just because you've got more numbers doesn't mean that you have more power. Deepika, in, in Mississauga, you're a counselor. Do you hear about this uh, there? Because there's just as many running clubs, I'm sure there and maybe the sidewalks are a bit wider because ours were built a long time ago and pretty narrow. But having said all that, uh, do you hear about this in Mississauga? No, uh, but, you know, I haven't personally run into an aggressive club. I mean, I've seen uh, groups running and, you know, it's always wonderful to see that. And I liked what uh, Tim said earlier. It does make me feel guilty when I see these uh, groups running and think I should be running. But I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, because when I read the article, John, I think some of the clubs acknowledged, I think two of them, that, yes, this can be a problem where sometimes you think we are running. And so we have right away. Uh, and also, I think things like TikTok, you know, you like to sensationalize things. And then there's the group pylon mentality. I may have never noticed it, but now that someone's raised it on TikTok, I'm going to add my comment and say, yeah, this is a bad thing. So I think the truth somewhere in the middle. Once in a way, I think they can get aggressive, but nothing to get upset about. I think it's tempest in a teapot. 
I think so, Bob. Are you with that? You're pretty good at measuring uh, these things from all your experience. Uh, it's, it's attempts in a teapot, not the thing that should be occupying too much time of our uh, city governors. Yeah, I, I don't think this is a widespread problem that is taking over the city, but uh, I, I do think it's probably another sign of just the overall congestion and, and the increased demand on on the limited amounts of space that we have. And and a lot of that, I think, is, is flows from the the intensification of development that we're seeing that doesn't, in most cases, doesn't allow for wider sidewalks as well so you're putting you're putting more people on top of each other you're putting taller more dense structures on old city streets and and the sidewalks only staying the same width i think that might be part of it uh, but the other thing is uh and again uh, this is a i think this is a fairly isolated problem but if you if you put a pack of anybody together whether they're runners or cyclists or whatever sometimes there's a mentality that takes over that really needs to be held in check come on people yeah and you know the the best example i think and all of you probably have been there because it is one of the busier intersections in downtown i mean young street was built it's, it's the sort of main street of toronto it was built in a way that's so different than say fifth avenue or whatever in new york and we add you know condo tower after condo tower after condo tower and a huge expansion in the population of toronto metropolitan university formerly ryerson and yet you have i think the narrowest sidewalks in the entire city narrower i think than the sidewalks in some neighborhoods uh and they just you know there has to be some give there and there sure isn't room i will say on those sidewalks for a lot of running uh, groups, aggressive or not. Uh, speaking of, of buildings and development and all that, uh, there's provincial legislation that's come into effect finally, it was passed a while ago, that is actually going to um, make it harder to maintain indefinitely a heritage designation or a listing on buildings. And I think we all know that in a lot of cases, and I'll start with you on this one, Bob, uh, buildings were listed for what I'll call political purposes to stop development. And they were just a bunch of kind of, uh, frankly, um, unnoteworthy, if there is such a word, unnoteworthy stores, but it was a convenient way to say by putting on that listing or that designation, you slow down the process of development, which some might have seen as a good thing, but now they're going to make it harder to maintain that kind of designation indefinitely. Yeah, I think you're right. I, th I think uh, that uh, getting putting putting properties on on the heritage designation or the listing uh, was a way of of uh, jamming a stick in the spokes of, of development by uh, by those who who are opposed to it. So I think that's that that is a factor here. Uh, another fact that caught my eye, though, and and let me say, uh, I want to be clear. I am a I am a huge believer in preserving our architectural heritage. I think yeah, me too. We've done a, a bad job of it too. Yeah, we've done a bad yeah. job yeah mm -hmm. yeah there have been a lot of mistakes made over the years so i don't want to see things bulldozed willy-nilly in, in in the name of uh, of more glass uh, condo towers not by any stretch but the fact that um You've got buildings that have been on, been on what they call the Heritage Register since 1973, but they've never been officially designated, which means they haven't been fully assessed as to whether they really are his, uh, historical properties that are worthy of preservation or not. So that needs to be addressed. The flip side of it, though, is we've got to be really careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And in the name of wanting to speed up development and wanting to get more housing built and all all of those good things that we're not running too fast in the other direction. 
Exactly. Uh, this is not, maybe not, I don't know whether it's a problem that's going to affect, I mean, it's provincial legislation. So, uh, Laura, you're in Hamilton and uh, Dipika, you're in uh, Mississauga. Is this something uh, that has been used the same way in Hamilton, where there's quite a lot of development taking place because it's such a favorable, you know, place in light of everything that's going on with housing prices and so on? Is this something that's uh, been used as a tool in the kind of, I'll call it an inappropriate way in Hamilton? Well, there's certainly been robust discussions about it. I think, you know, in some cases, sure, people want to pause something they see as unsightly or NIMBY or just, you know, a bad development. Um, but there's also been cases in Hamilton, since you mentioned it, John, where there has been permission given to take down historic structures with the promise of saving the facade. And then the development company just goes AWOL and we're stuck with these facades with nothing behind them, empty parking lots, right? So, I mean, there's a balance here. And, and while I, I am all about densification and the fact that, you know, to avoid using the Greenbelt, for instance, we have to build within our urban boundaries. It can't just be this ideological, you know, forget heritage lists. They're all nonsense. Let's just, you know, tear down and build. Uh, we have to find a balance. And when you made the comment earlier to Bob that we haven't done a good job with this in Canada, we really haven't. You know, what do we consider to be something of significant heritage? Uh, do we have an understanding of that? When we travel the world, we see places that seem to get it. And they have these beautiful, cohesive cityscapes that we're envious of. So uh, while I get we need to build and densify, I hope that we can approach this uh, with some sort of due diligence so that we're, we're not tearing down things that really do belong on those lists. Last word and last minute to you on this, Tipica. Is this even a problem in a relatively young city like Mississauga? Do we even have heritage discussions yet? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, it's not, it's uh, there's parts of Mississauga like Cooksville that's among the oldest uh, settlements in Ontario. Nothing left, right? Almost nothing left. I'm in the pro I represent Cooksville. I'm in the process of starting the Cooksville Historical Society um, because I, I do think that we should preserve history. But what I find is that I think what the provincial government's trying to do is right intent, but very bad execution like to give two years is too little to turn this thing around and i liked what bob said let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. so what i mean is batch listing like entire blocks of danforth uh as you know listing them as mm -hmm. potential heritage sites i think that's wrong you, I, I can't imagine that every single building there deserves that but then by doing that now you're adding three, four, five, six months of extra time if somebody wants to develop it. Plus, it's a disincentive. No developer wants to go close to something with potential heritage issues. So I think the idea of cleaning it up and giving cities a certain amount of time to say, look, listen, you can't just leave and add stuff as, you know, as an insurance and just keep adding stuff. Just decide what's worth preserving and what's not worth and preserving. So I like that intent. Yeah. All right. Just giving two years may not be enough. Typical to Marilla, Mississauga City Councilor Bob Reed uh, from uh, a Broadway Strategy and Laura Babcock from Power Group. Thank you all very much. Catch the Roundtable, Round 1 at 7.45, Round 2 at 8.45. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.